a choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a run. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expanding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very Expanding reality. Welcome to Expanding Reality Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Thomas. On this episode, guys, I got the honor to sit down with the legendary Jim Goodall. Uh, if you've been following his work at all, he's got 27 books in print. The Amazon link to how to find those is in the show notes. He writes on aeronautics. Uh, he's got a few books on submarines. He's absolutely fascinating. Now, beyond that, we talked about his uh, relationship with uh, Bob Lazar, right? When he met Bob Lazar at John Lear's house, hanging out. Uh, he was also pen pals with Ben Rich of the Lockheed Skunk Works, of course, and he is famous for quite a few ominous quotes uh, that were cited around the UFO community quite a bit. Uh, he talks about Area 51. Uh, we have just a fantastic conversation. Like I said, he's a legend, guys. Uh, so this was a true honor for me personally. So um, all the ways to find him and his books are, of course, going to be linked down in the show notes. And uh, just without further ado, guys, uh, Mr. Jim Goodall. Ladies and gentlemen, on the show today, we have the legend, Jim Goodall. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's a little bit warm. It hit 99 yesterday. Because you're out there and, in Arizona. Right, right. And the average temperature over the next uh, 10 days is going to be 90 degrees. So summer, summer is upon us, even though some areas of the states, it's snowing. But it's it's wild, man, because we get the same thing out here in Texas and I'm in North Texas. And it seems like a lot of the times we go straight from winter to summer. We get about two weeks, which is <laughs> yeah, just yeah, absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. And, yep. you know, I'm out here mowing and it's wonderful and the butterflies are out, dude. And then all of a sudden it's like and 120. It's like, OK, yep. cool. Yeah, <laughs> that's just what we do, man. But it's better than freezing cold in my mind. I don't live in Texas because I like cold weather. Besides the weather out there in Arizona, uh, how's everything going, man? I saw you just got a little puppy. Yeah, her name is Scarlett. She is uh, she was a, a feral rescue German Shepherd dog, and she is beautiful. Well, you, you had a chance to see her when yeah, you were here. I, I well, I saw the pictures of her. Yes, sir. Yeah, but you were here. Uh, no, that was Darcy Weir. Darcy. Okay, yeah, that's, that's right. Okay. I'm sorry. He's a good got, friend of mine. Got, you know I got what? The two of you. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm flattered. If you think that I look like Darcy, he's a handsome guy, and I do. Well, I was saying that. that you you look a little bit different, but um, <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. No, he's a he's a good friend, good friend of the show. He's been on twice, actually. He came on with Stephen Bassett, and then he was just recently on with uh, Gary King, and we did an episode about crop circles, and it was fantastic. Okay. He's a fascinating guy. So I heard he came out there and stayed with y'all? Yep. I uh, flew in from Houston, uh, spent uh, two days here. Uh, took an, uh, We did a quick run into the uh, PMA Air and Space Museum. Because he wanted, you know, he wanted to see a blackbird up close and personal. Absolutely. And so that's why I brought him. And uh, we didn't spend much time there, but he had he had a great time. He, he's looking, you know, looking forward to coming back. 
He's a great guy. So, yeah, when he was yeah. down in Houston, we tried to we I tried to drive down there. It's about five hours from us, and I just couldn't get the time, man. And I just messaged him kind of last minute. I was like, dude, I'm not gonna be able to make this happen. He was like, I completely understand. He's a sweetheart and he's a great guy. So he was interviewing yeah. you for his next film, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah. Okay. We, uh, we did one one thing for the cousin brothers uh, for Lydian and one a thing they're doing, and then um, I think. I think he interviewed me for what four hours, two and a half or four hours, and we could have gone all night. I mean, I, the one thing the one thing I'm really good at is talking. <laughs> well, perfect. Then, in yes. in fact, to that point, if you don't mind, sir, for the audience of mine that doesn't know you as well as I do, if you could just give us give us a little rundown of yourself, just a little backstory. Okay, I'm a uh, I'm a retired uh, Air Force Air National Guard Master Sergeant. On uh, March 10th, 1964, I saw my first Blackbird. I was an uh, airman second. And that's two stripes because they don't use that term anymore because it's politically incorrect. And never in my life did I ever think that I would be one of the foremost uh, historians on the Blackbird program, Area 51, F-117, and basically all things skunk works. And it's just it's just been fun. And I've the last thing in the world I ever wanted to do was to write. I hated term papers in school. I mean, with a passion. If I had uh, a term paper to go, say, 500 words, I have six weeks to do it. You know, so it's, you know, it's maybe a couple words a day and I could have had it done. Three o'clock in the morning or the night it's due with a Smith Corona. That's a typewriter for those millennials out there that have never seen one. <laughs> um, so I'm pounding away and I, the last thing I ever thought I'd ever do would, would be a, it would be a published author and get this, that thing up there. Look at that. This is my, this is my 27th book. You got it all? Or? Well, actually it's perfect because whenever you covered it up, it, it uh, showed the one in the back on your book stand there. So that worked perfectly. So yeah, 75 years of skunk works. So for the audience that doesn't know as well, um, what, what break down skunk works for us? What is that? Uh, the skunk works is probably the, uh, the most advanced aeronautical design group in the world. It was, it was put together by Kelly Johnson in the uh, middle of world war II. Uh 1943. They were given, a, they were given a request for a proposal to build a jet fighter, which was going to be the XP 80. And Kelly Johnson got the contract. He was able from sign a contract to first flight was 143 days. I mean, that's what the Skunk Works is all about. And then the next mate, the next major airplane to come out of the Skunk Works was the C-130. Everybody in the Air Force uh, since the mid 1950s has flown or seen a C-130. And then uh, after that came the U-2. And Ben Rich, who was, uh, he replaced Kelly Johnson as the president. Ben Rich always felt that the most important airplane ever, ever to come out of the Skunk Works was the U-2. And it first flew in 4th of July, 1955. And the U-2S is still flying today. It's just, it's just, just an incredible, it's, it's, it's a jet-powered glider. And on May 1st, 1960, uh, Francis Gary Powers was shot down in a U-2 flying over uh, Central Soviet Union. And those, again, for the, for the youngsters out there, that's what 
Russia used to be called when it was the Soviet Union. Thank you. We do have a wide audience here. So thank oh, I know. You I, and I mean, I, I mentioned stuff that to me is 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 just everyday knowledge and people scratch their heads. What the heck are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, I grew up when I grew up, we had we had the first t TV in the neighborhood. It was 19, 1947. And we had uh, uh, three channels, four, five, and 13. And then uh, we got channel, I think it was channel two or channel three, which was the PBS affiliate. And I was the remote. Jimmy, go change, go change the channel. And we had rabbit ears and a screen that was about this big. Yep. And high, black and white. High black technology. White. High technology. Yeah. And, you know, color, color didn't come in until in the late 1950s. And we had a neighbor uh, of a buddy of mine. They uh, they went out and bought one of the very first RCA color TVs. And this is the this is in the late 1950s. And it was twenty four hundred dollars in 1956 or fifty seven dollars. Yeah. So yeah. today you that would be a. Uh, a thirty thousand dollar TV, and the color the color was just terrible. So, by especially by today's standards, I mean you look you look at some you know some of the really high definition you know TV screens with uh, running something on 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 eight K or whatever, and it's just it's just amazing. It's just amazing. Well, so I wanted to uh, come back to your books uh, for a little bit. So uh, the books that you've done, you you have uh, a high affinity for uh, anything aeronautics. Uh, you even did a few books on submarines, on what, the Ohio class, right? Uh, and you have done some incredible research on that. Now, back to what you said about your term papers and, and how you couldn't see yourself being an author because of how... Um, taxing even envisioning writing a term paper was well it's probably because you weren't writing on a subject that you you know cared about that you enjoyed that you were so passionate about as what you do in your books and that's why you've been so successful with your books well i mean a couple of people have asked me says why in the world since you like the blackbird area 51 the f-117 the u-2 ufos and and whatever how in the heck did you get interested in submarines i said they're black, they're stealth, and they're deadly. So it meets all the qualifications. To, you know, get, to, and it's secretive. Yep. I mean, I I had it took me seven and a half years to get on a Sea Wolf class submarine. I got on the USS Connecticut SSN twenty two in the um, August of uh, seventeen. It took me seven and a half years to finally get on it, and I I ran into a. a, a uh, I had some stuff posted, but I got a, I got an email from a guy who said, "Hey, I was I was on the Connecticut. I was you know I was also on the Sea Wolf." He said, "How in the hell did you get on there with a camera?" I said, "Not only did I get on there with a camera, I photographed everything from the reactor bulkhead forward." And the thing about <clears throat> the Sea Wolf class, they only have three of them. They have the Sea Wolf, the Connecticut, and the Jimmy Carter. The Jimmy Carter is a spook boat. Which is it adds another flavor to my uh, you know to my palate. Uh, but when a Sea Wolf, when either the Sea Wolf or the Connecticut, when they go out on patrol, they have they have a two story torpedo room. They have eight torpedo tubes, and when they go on patrol, they carry fifty torpedoes. 
one Seawolf class submarine is designed to take out the entire Soviet Northern fleet when it was designed. I've been on 19 submarines. I've been at 400 feet deep on a ballistic missile submarine. Uh, I've been up on the sail going through the Straits of Juan de Fuca on the USS Henry M. Jackson. And behind me were 100 hydrogen bombs. Dang. So I looked around and I said, well, Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman have nothing on me as far yeah. as, you know, on Crimson Tide. <laughs> nice pull of Crimson Tide. Absolutely. Well, right. that is that is one thing I have no desire to do, man. I think a submarine is probably the most terrifying thing I can think about. So uh, were you just overwhelmed with how amazing that is? Or do you just not have a fear of being in a submarine that deep? Now, I've been married three times. So... <laughs> 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 okay, that's that's so absolutely. <laughs> no, I had I had I absolutely no no concern whatsoever. Now I have formally, you know, COVID screwed a lot of things up, but I have resubmitted my request <clears throat> to on the next Virginia class submarine leaving refit from Bremerton, Washington, going back to Pearl Harbor. I want to be on one of those boats. I want to document what it's like going on a 2,400 mile transit underwater. And if it, you know, if something happens, it happens. I mean, I, 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 have, I put my life in jeopardy so many times on my hobbies and, and my loves that it's, it's no big thing anymore. <laughs> well, uh, what was in the most um, hairy situation that you've been in that you didn't think you'd make it out of, but that you did? Mountain climbing. <laughs> we, really? we went out. Yeah, this is when I was stationed in Denver back in, in the uh, early 60s. We had gone to, we were going to, on our way to Estes Park, and a guy named Lyle was a buddy of mine. He was a Russian linguist. But we had a uh, backpack filled with <clears throat> country club malt liquor, which is a fortified malt liquor. I mean, it, two small cans will put you on your fanny. And we're, we're drinking as we're climbing. It was actually, it was, it was a hike up to the top of this pinnacle. When we got to the top of the pinnacle and we looked straight down, it's over 800 feet. And then we couldn't remember what path we took to go up there. And now we're really blitzed. <laughs> so so we're, we're, we're going on a, a, a ledge about this wide and, and it's angled about so. So we're walking, we're I mean, very gingerly walking on it, but there's a crack and we can see where we're supposed to be, where, where we can now st start walking uh, normally. But you have to jump about a three and a half foot uh, crack that had no walk. So you had to jump from one side of the, the, the crack to the other. And I swear, if you go, if you would go back and find that exact spot where I jumped, and it took me about 20 minutes before I screwed up enough courage. And I sobered up really fast also. Yeah, I would think but so. I bet if you I bet if you went and looked, you could find my the imprints of my hands in the granite as I grabbed all the little, you know, the cracks on the other side. Damn. So you had to jump and you're actually hanging on to the other side. Yeah, no, there there, there, there was a, there was another uh, uh shelf oh, there. I see, you know. I see. But still, I mean, damn, man. Yeah, that is pretty crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um uh in, in my in my uh, times out in the desert, probably the most interesting one. I was with John Lear, 
we were at the fence line at Tonopah test range. This is in 96. This is supposedly it was on caretaker status. We're at there about 11 o'clock at night. We're out there in our, in our lawn chairs. You tape up your, your cuffs or your pants so the scorpions don't crawl up your legs. And we both have night vision goggles on. And I, I looked just south of me, and there's, there's, uh, there's an armored personnel carrier coming up from the south, one coming from the east, one coming from the west. And I stand up and yell really loud, hey, we're good guys, we're taxpayers. And all of a sudden, we had floodlights on us. John had three little red dots dancing on his chest. I had three little red dots on mine. Now, for all I know, they were, you know, they were just pointers, but it has the effect of saying, oh boy, I've been led to assume, right? Yeah. And then behind John Lear's truck, this other guy came uh, dressed in in desert uh, BDUs and he has his hand on his gun. Now, both John and I both, he has a 45. I have a, I have a Beretta, nine millimeter Beretta. It's for critters. Mm-hmm. And this guy said, you're in a restricted area and I'm ordering you to leave. And I said, sir, I don't know who you are, but this is public lands and we don't have to go anywhere. I said, I'm ordering you to leave. And I said, who are you? I said, I'm captain so-and-so with advanced security Inc. I said, well, you're a rent-a-cop. You don't have any jurisdiction on this side of the fence. And you can just see his jaws just <laughs> tightening up. I mean, he's he's pissed. Yeah. So I want to see some ID. And I, I said, sir, I don't have to show you anything. So well, you're in a restricted area and you're going to you are going to leave now. And I, I pull out a map on my back pocket, an aeronautical map printed by the federal government that gives the uh, boundaries of restricted areas to the second longitude and latitude. And I told this, I told this ASI guy, I said, if you look down at the corner of that, the base of that fence post over there, you'll see a USGS medallion. And it gives the longitude and latitude of where we're at. According to this official government uh, piece of paper, I'm on public lands and I can be here for 15 consecutive days without asking anybody's permission. And that's when I said, well, I want to see some ID. I said, I haven't done I haven't done any reason to, for me to give you an ID. He said, well, I've been deputized by Nike, Nye Esmeralda and Lincoln County, the state of Nevada, to uphold the laws of the federal government and the state of Nevada. I said, well, good for you. And you can see he's getting more pissed as, as it goes on. I said, I said, I tell you what, you show me yours, I'll show you mine. So he hands me his ASI badge. I said, sir, that's not a that's not a valid form of ID. I need something issued by the state or federal government. And boy, he's I mean, his jaws are just I mean, he's just popping out and whole bit. So he hands me his Nevada driver's license. I don't have my glasses on. So I pull out my Minnesota driver's license because Minnesota was home back then. Lear lives in Vegas. He still has his feet up on the on the barbed wire. And this guy hands it to a guy in the south side of the fence who goes to one of the armored personnel carriers and light turned on and his supervisor, you know, more than likely. And I heard him say, and I'm real hard of hearing. I heard him say, oh, shit, it's good all in Lear. (laughs) And they turned the lights went off. The red dots went away. Guy came came back, gave us our ID and they dispersed. But they knew where they knew we were there and we, we knew that they. Uh, we were never going to 
see anything exciting happen that night. Got you, because they were aware that you were there. Right, right. And I've had I've had guns in my face. Um, I've been threatened. I was tried to be threatened to come off of uh, Freedom Ridge, which they eventually took away. But what they didn't know of the ten people that were up there in my in my crew. This is three o'clock in the morning. <clears throat> one of one of them was the chief of police of Tulare, California. His commandant, his chief detective, homicide detective, and another uh, you know an, another uh, detective. There, plus there was Stu Brown from Popular Science. There was uh, John Andrews from Testers, Glenn Campbell from the Area Fifty One Research Center and two or three other guys it was uh you wake up with flashlight in your face guys with their with, with their you know with a their hands and their weapon and they were giving us a bunch of crap and finally they left and i, I put my night vision goggles on and i looked down at the bottom hill there was about 30 people surrounding uh the, the the small little mountain we were on and we could drive up to it that's i think that's what really irritated the hell out of them because mm-hmm. we found a way to drive up there so those those are the things that you run into when you're in the middle of nowhere, snooping on the federal government, which is one of my hobbies. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, and you want to know what's going on out there. So how did you meet John Lear? Because his dad, of course, made the Learjet. That's what his dad's famous for. But John Correct. Lear himself has been a, a he was a pilot. I mean, he did a ton of cool stuff. And uh, he is famous. Well, one of the things he's famous for, of course, is the introduction of Bob Lazar, I believe, to George Knapp. And that's how the Bob Lazar story came out. And I know you um, have a story with Bob Lazar as well. Isn't that correct? Correct. Correct. I had uh, in 1971 or 72, I got a call from uh from a buddy of mine who worked at the Air Force Museum. He was a retired master sergeant. His name was Dave Menard. He said, a friend of his who was the one of the key people at Testers model where they make plastic scale models, said he wants he wants to do a quarter inch scale model of the Blackbird and he keeps running into brick walls. And and he said, who? Who out there knows anything about the Blackbird that can help me? And Dave said, with your permission, I will give John your number. So he did. And John John Andrews and I became instant friends. I mean, it was it was like a a brother from another mother. And the moment I met him face to face, it was like I was meeting an old friend for the very, very first time. So I linked up with John and and. Andrews and he said, Hey, I got a buddy of mine. I know you're going to enjoy. His name is John Lear. <clears throat> His dad was William Lear. So I got an introduce an introduction to him from, uh, with John, we went over uh, to Lear's house and, and Andrews uh, introduced me to him. So, and then, and then John Lear, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a walking comic book is what he is. And I just, I, you never know when he's pulling your leg. <laughs> Um, but he's just, he's just a, he's a great guy. Uh, just, I think the world of him, I thought we were going to lose him about four or five years ago. Uh, he's been in three plane crashes where he broke his feet. I mean, he shattered his feet and he's had trouble with his feet ever since. And he was a young kid. I mean, he was, I think he was still in his teens when he crashed his first airplane, but, but John and I are, are like two peas in a pod. We're both a little bit on the crazy side. But I was uh, I was in Vegas with uh, with John. This is January of 89. 
And I wanted to photograph an F-117. They had announced it in November. No one had really seen it. It was a terrible compressed photo taken from a tanker, taken at night, backlit of an F-117. But you really couldn't tell what was there. So John says, well, I think I know where they're flying out of. Uh, it's just outside of the town of Tonopah. So we're going up US 95 and we go, we're just near Scotty's Junction. And Scotty's Junction is one of the legal <clears throat> houses of ill repute, whorehouse, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and an F-117 went flying right over, you know, just about a 45 degree angle <clears throat> right across our, my bow. He was at about 1,500 feet, and I about crashed the car. So we, we get in Tonopah, we grab a quick bite, we drive down US 6 to the turnoff, it's about 14 miles, and then you go down 18 miles down to the main gate of Tonopah Test Range. A lot of activities, and John and I just took the dirt road on the north side of the fence line. And we're out there for a while, and I look to the, you know, to the north of me, and I can see a little white dot and a bigger black dot. And I'm watching, I'm watching, and all of a sudden I realize it's an F-117 with a T-38 chase. So I have print film. This is way before digital. And I'm, you know, it's coming towards me and I'm just shooting away and seeing something that no one else has seen, no one outside of Lockheed and the guys that worked at Area 51, and at Tonopah, it was like being a 10-year-old kid seeing your first naked woman. Not a girl. I'm a naked woman. I mean, my whole body was just, it was just trembling. And uh, they, they landed and John and I said, well, we got to get, get back to Vegas. He said, I got a buddy of mine coming over uh, about 9, 9, 9.15, 9.30 tonight. So let's get back. And we got back about nine o'clock. Back in those days, they had a thing, a, things called photo mats. Now, they've been replaced by baristas where you can go get a cup of coffee. But you used to be able to drop your film off there and come back the next day and you have your, your print film processed and printed. So they were all closed by the time we got back to Vegas. And I'm just chomping at the bit. I have this, this gold in my, in my camera. And I, I need to see if any of them came out unblurred. <clears throat> So about quarter after nine, knock on the front door. John goes, open the door. I'm in his, I'm John's office or his den. Here comes a nice young guy. Uh, John said he just, this guy had just moved here from Albuquerque. He was interviewing for a job out in the desert. And the guy comes in and said, hi, my name is Bob Lazar. So we're, we're talking airplanes and stuff and the desert and whatever. And I tell him my, about my dilemma about having some exposed film of the F-117. They're going to wait till tomorrow or the next day to get it processed. And he said, well, I have a processing unit at home. He lived on West. He lived off to West Charleston. So let's, let's run over there. We take about half hour, 45 minutes, and then we'll come back here and talk airplanes and spooky stuff for the rest of the night. I said, great. So we jump, we jump in his car. We're about a half a block from Lear's house. And Lazar looks at me and he said, I feel sorry for John. I mean, the dumb son of a bitch. He's from a world famous aviation family. I mean, his dad brought Learjet to the world and the son of a bitch believes in UFOs. How stupid is that? He said, if, if I can't 
If I can't prove it mathematically or put my hands on it, it doesn't exist as far as I'm concerned. And this is before he went to work out in the desert. Now, a, a year, a year and a half later, he was silhouetted on George Knapp's uh, special. Yep, in the back of a van. Yep, and uh, Bob and I became friends. And people say, "Well, he's a plant. He's you know he he, he never did anything or whatever." And I said, "Baloney." Yeah, I'm, I'm a fairly good reader of people. Not very good on wives, but I'm a fairly good uh, <laughs> judge of character. Uh, and his story has never really changed. And when <clears throat> when George Knapp was doing the in investigation, he contacted Edward Teller because Teller, John, I mean, Bob Lazar said that uh, Edward Teller is the one who actually hired him. So he, con he contacts Edward Teller. And Edward Teller's response was when he asked about Bob Lazar was no comment. And people say, well, that proves that he's a phony. I said, no, that proves that he was real. Because if you're in the military or you're working on classified, a classified program, you can neither confirm or deny people who worked on the program or the program itself. If Bob was, if Bob Lazar was a phony, if Bob was a fraud, that's all Teller had to say. Never, I never, don't know who the guy is. He's feeding you a line of bull. Um, I wouldn't have anything to do with him. I mean, if that was, if that was true. So that was in uh, what, 89, 90 timeframe. So let's fast forward to Desert Storm. I'm I'm at the Pentagon. I've been activated. I had I had let me step back. I had five years active active duty. I had a 10-year break and then 21 years with the Minnesota Air Guard as a traditional weekender, a weekend warrior. Best decision I ever made. Um, but uh, when I was activated for Desert uh, Shield and Desert Storm, I'm a his, I was a uh, Air Force historian. That was my my uh, specialty code. I went there uh, and I had to read everything going to and from CENTCOM and pull anything out that was that was pertained to the National Guard, either the Army Guard or the Air Guard. And in my back pocket the whole time I was there, I had Bob Lazar's W-2 from the Navy when he worked at S-4. Now I blocked out his his social security number, and I had I had a couple hours to kill, and then uh, so I decided I was to see if I can find the Navy operation that sent sent out the W two. So I'm looking, I'm, I found someone that was close. I think it was Naval Investigator Services or something to do with uh, the you know, Navy and investigations. And I go up there and I'm in uniform. I'm a I'm at at this particular time, I'm a tech sergeant, and I go in there, and there's uh, I find the room. The uh, there's a, a young, I think a lieutenant JG sitting behind the desk, and I said, "Sir, can you tell me where this place is?" And I hand him Bob's W two, and he looks at it and he said, "Excuse me for a minute." Goes into the two stars office, the rear admiral's office. He's in there about. 30 seconds. He comes out. He said, the Admiral will see you now. Now, those those of you who are familiar with 
how Navy admirals are towards enlisted people, probably the lowest form of life that a Navy admiral could see would be, oh, an enlisted Air Force guy. <laughs> so there's, there's, I don't even know how to put it. I must have really hit his hot button. So I go in there, I give him a real sharp salute. And he says, Sergeant at ease. No, parade rest. He didn't say at ease. So I'm sitting there parade rest and he's looking at he's looking at Bob's W2. And he says, Sergeant, I don't know where you got this piece of paper. But if I ever see your face cross the threshold of my office ever again, you're going to be the most sorry son of a bitch in NCO in the United States military. Do you understand each other, Sergeant? I said, yes, sir. And with that, he put Bob's uh, W-2 in a shredder and he said, you're dismissed. So I gave him a sharp salute, turned, you know, did an about face and walked out of his office. I'm saying for a guy who's supposedly phony yep. to get to get a two star admiral to get incredibly excited about Bob Lazar. That just adds that just one more one more piece of proof that Bob was there. When uh, George Knapp was doing the investigation, to, you know, to val you know, validate if Bob Lazar was real, you know, Bob had told him that he had he had a jet uh, car, which I'd seen, and uh, he was written up in the local Albuquerque newspaper. And I, I had I didn't I don't have a copy of it now, but back then I had a copy of it, and it was says Sandia. Uh, scientists or professor uh, likes to do fun things on weekend like go 300 miles an hour in his car and uh, that right i mean it was here i mean it was a picture of bob it was a picture of his car and so there's no mistake in bob lazar what, what he looks like so that proved that one he, he was at sandia he was written up in the newspaper and it showed his picture he also told george knapp of the room he worked in, the guys that were in his lab with him, and the phone number to the office. So when George was in Albuquerque, he, he made it over to the Sandia Library. They have a, a public part of the library. And he went and found a phone directory for the time that Bob said he was there. And lo and behold, there was a Robert a Robert Lazar listed in the room that Bob said he was in with the phone number that he said he had. So that was just one more thing to say that, hey, I'm real. Now, Bob's uh, Social Security number, according to the federal government, the one the his original one was never issued. Mm. He did. And and as good as the government is of, of erasing people, depending on what you've done and what kind of trail you've left behind, they would have a hard time erasing my existence because I've been a pain in the butt to so many people for so long. <clears throat> I'm I'm uh, yeah, I'm all over the place. So. So, you know, Bob, Bob is a guy he he could have made a lot of money early on if he would have. Um, it embellished what he did or lied about what he did, but he didn't. He said he couldn't. And he also told me last time I, uh, I sat down with him was, uh, God, it was about five years ago now. 
he said the biggest mistake he ever made was going public. He said if he were to do it to get if he were to do it again, if he could start all over again, he would probably probably have have left about the same time because it was just it was an environment that he just it was alien. It's a good word, alien to him. And he, he didn't want to be there. So when he's got a compelling story and George Knapp was able to verify uh, at least those two key points, I'd never heard about his uh, W-2. So that's really interesting that you had a hold of that. And of course, it is interesting as well that you were called into that admiral's office, that he shredded it immediately. And like you said, uh, why would they do that if there was nothing to it, if this guy was a quack? And like you said, his story has stayed remarkably consistent over the years, which is very hard to do if you're lying. And the things that he said were so fantastic that it's it's been an incredible element to the story of UFOs and to the to the mission of us getting some sort of disclosure or moving us forward on at least that the government knows what's going on and that they're doing something about it, right? Well, I had uh, along the same lines, <clears throat> I had the honor to be a sort of like a pen pal, but via the phone with Ben Rich, who replaced Kelly Johnson at the Skunk Works. And Ben and I spoke on average about once a quarter for 25 years. Now, let me interject here because uh, if, for the people out there that don't know Ben Rich was, he took over as uh, the head of Lockheed Skunk Works, as well as he has a couple of very famous and anonymous, uh, what's the word, ominous quotes um, that he is he is credited to, like his, uh, we have the means to take E.T. home again, and it would Correct. take an act of God and to get him out of the black projects that they're in. Um, he, he is just famous for wanting to tell the full story, but not being able to. And he was embedded in the number one um, secretive aircraft uh, type of a manufacturer. So I apologize. I wanted to give a little bit of context yeah, no, no, that's, why uh, yeah. Ben Rich is important. Yeah. Just Ben died around Christmas time. I think it was 96. But I called him at USC Medical Center. And we were talking about the late John Andrews from Testers. Because John had come out with his monster F-117 model, the 32nd scale, thanks to my photographs. <laughs> and, uh, and John could get more things out of a, out of a photograph than anybody I know. Uh, but I was talking to Ben and Ben, ben and about advanced technologies or whatever. And, and then Ben said something that just struck me. He said, Jim, we have things out in the desert that's 50 years beyond what you can comprehend, not what you think you can build. And he was referring directly to me as far as what, not what you think you can build in 50 years, but what you can comprehend. And if you've seen movies like Star Wars or Star Trek, we've been there, done that, or decided it wasn't worth the effort. I said, Ben, you want to expand upon that? He said, typical Ben. No. And he passed away about 10 days later. So he, he had agreed before he got his cancer, he had agreed to, to do a no holds barred interview, video interview with me, all questions answered. But he just we both ran out of time. Mm. I mean, that would have been that would have been a barn burner right there. But again, I'm blessed to have him as my as as someone I, I said was my friend. Absolutely. 
And in his book that he did with Leo Janos, I got it. I got the last copy he ever autographed. And it was uh, to Jim Goodall, the Skunk Works biggest fan and the proud crew chief of number 128, which was the A-12 that I acquired because of Ben. And A-12, for those who don't know, that was the CIA version of the Blackbird. And I acquired one in uh, 1991 and moved it from California to Minnesota, going to the Minnesota Air Guard Museum inside a New York Air Guard C-5. And with that movement, I'm also the only guy on the planet to have been in the cockpit of a Blackbird at 33,000 feet at Mach 0.72 inside another airplane. <laughs> so, <laughs> like a Jonah and the whale type situation, man. Oh, absolutely. you guys absolutely. were transporting it. It didn't fly, of course, so you put it in a different no, aircraft. right, right. That's incredible. But the way that you got to do that as well, that's a pretty cool story. Talk about that detail. Well, like I say, Ben and I communicated at least once a quarter. Either he'd call me or I'd call him. I mean, that's that's a pretty amazing thing when the president of the Skunk Works calls some some guy in Minnesota who really had I have no direct connection to Lockheed. I have no direct connection to the Skunk Works other than I'm passionate about what they do. And he called me in August of 89 and he said, Jim, I said, I've got this from the horse's mouth. The Blackbirds aren't going to make it through Congress. And if anyone can scrounge one, you can. So I said, okay. He said, he said, I'm giving you the heads up. No one else knows except for a few people in Congress. So I went to my boss, the two-star, General Al, Major General Al Schwab. I said, General Schwab, I'd like to get a Blackbird for our museum. He starts laughing at me. I said, sir, rather than laugh at me and say no, Give me the opportunity to fail. And I said, all right, Smarty, how are you going to get it here? It doesn't fly. I said, I got that covered. I said, what do you mean? I said, I called the adjutant general of the state of New York, General Weaver. And in the air guard, you can violate the chain of command and not get crucified. And the chain of command in the air guard is only three levels. You have the squadron, the wing, and then uh, headquarters, and that's it. So I called the New York Air Guard, uh, the adjutant general. Secretary answered the phone. I said, this is Sergeant Goodall with the 133rd. Is General Weaver available? I said, just a minute, Sarge, I'll put you through. So he puts me through. And uh, I talked to him. I said, General Weaver, so I have a proposition for you. And he said, what's that, Sarge? He said, how would the New York Air Guard like to move the world's fastest airplane in a couple of your C-5s, dead silence for a few seconds. It said, you mean the Blackbird? I said, yes, sir. He said, when you're ready, you call Will Hall. So now Pratt and Whitney was trying to get a Blackbird for West Palm Beach. They were gonna put it on a big wind vane. So it'd always be point, even when hurricanes came through, it always be pointing into the wind. And they asked the Air Force if they could, can we lease a C-5? To move something he said absolutely it's nine hundred and sixty seven thousand dollars a day plus gas <laughs> i scrounged two c5s for eight days each as a scrounge i was i beat i beat sergeant bilko hands down when it came to scrounging stuff i scrounged a blackbird and two c5s to move it 
So well, that just tells of who you are, and and you've you've met some incredible people. You've done some incredible things, but oh. it's your character, man. It's it's who you are. You're great. You're wonderful. Well, no, <laughs> there's no one who knows me has a neutral opinion of me. Mm. They either, hey, I really like Jim Goodall. Yeah. I can't stand that son of a bitch. I mean, there's no gray, there's no gray area. It's either one side or the other. But that's like the way to be, right? I mean, that's the way you want to be. You want to at least know where you stand with everybody around you. At least you don't have two-faced people around you that say that they like you, but they don't. And so you always know exactly where you stand with everybody. But you're a real no-nonsense guy, so I can understand that. Yeah. And, 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 and like my TI told me in basic training, said, you have everything going for you but your mouth. <laughs> I'm sure a couple of those wives uh, would agree with him. Am I right? Oh, oh absolutely. Without <laughs> any question, they would agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. So I, I want to get into UFOs with you. So okay. let's, let's talk some UFOs, man. So first and foremost, what do you think? I was a docent at Kitt Peak National Observatories outside of Tucson for a couple of years. And at Kitt Peak, they have the largest collection of optical telescopes in the U.S. They have 22 telescopes from a 12-inch to a 13-foot diameter mirror. That's the Mayall 4-meter. But the 2.1-meter was used by Caltech for five years where they were doing, they were doing remote, uh, remote operation, but they had adaptive optics in it, which gave them similar quality uh, and clarity to the Hubble. What, what they would they do when they were when they were observing they were what they what Caltech was looking for they were doing a survey of a very very small portion of the Milky Way which is our which is our galaxy looking for exoplanets planets outside of our solar system that are orbiting neighbor, you know, neighboring stars and over the five year period you know based on uh, their observations they calculate that they identified 8,000 exoplanets in a very, very small part of the, of the Milky Way. Now, that what gave, what gave the uh, 2.1 meters such uh, uh, sharp images, you know, as good as almost as good as the Hubble, is they would shine up, they would shine an ultraviolet uh, laser into, into the sky. And at 18,000 feet, now there was a real, something specific. The beam had to be a specific diameter. And the computer and everything you know, knows where to go and look. And they would adjust a, a, their optics. They're, they would change the shape of the mirror, their tertiary mirror, 1,200 times a second in order to get – because what it was doing, it was canceling out any turbulence in the higher elevations of, of the atmosphere. Uh, Kitt Peak is at about 7,000 feet. Um, and this part of Arizona, this part of the desert Southwest has very, very little turbulence at altitude. And can we look up almost anywhere outside of the desert and you look up and you can see the stars, they'll twinkle. That's because of pollution and because of stuff in the atmosphere and turbulence. Down in southern Arizona, on a clear night, you look up, the stars don't twinkle. It's because they don't have that distortion. But just before I left Kitt Peak, we had a meeting with 
one of the senior astronomers from from the National Science Foundation came to speak to all of the docents, the astronomers and the technicians that work at Kitt Peak. And the subject matter was exoplanets. And, he, and again, this gentleman had just returned from a gathering of astronomers and they came, they have calculated best, you know, based on best guesstimates that for every star in the universe, I mean, that's a huge number, not galaxies, but for every star in the universe, there's one and a half planets. And out of that incredible number, they figure there, there are two billion, that's with a B, two billion Earth-like planets orbiting a similar similar brown dwarf star as our sun in the inhabitable zone with liquid water. So to quote Jodie Foster's character in the movie Contact, if we're the only ones, what a waste of space. Yep, yep, great line, great line. Yeah, now, uh, uh, you know, besides me knowing Bob Lazar, uh, I've interviewed a, a lot of a lot of people uh, about airplanes, about Area Fifty One, about stuff. And I was uh, my dad lived in uh, Tullahoma, Tennessee. Uh, he worked at the uh, he was in charge of one of the new wind tunnels there at Arnold Air Force Base there in Tullahoma. And eleven miles away is is uh, Lynchburg, Tennessee. It's the home of Jack Daniels, but it's also the home of the late. The Lieutenant Colonel Dave Fruhoff. He was a retired SR-71 pilot. And Dave had crashed, had been in an airplane he had a bailout of. And that's why I wanted to visit him. And uh, as, as we were, you know, during the interview, he had said that after he retired from the Air Force, that he had gotten a job at uh, uh, Flight Systems and eventually got a job as the facility manager at Area 51. And I, then I asked him, I said, Hey, Dave, you believe in UFOs? He said, absolutely, positively, they do exist. I said, you want to expand upon that? I was expecting him to say, oh, I can't talk about it. He said, sure. I said, well, tell me. He said, in, uh, so it was either late 72, 1972 or early 73, he's on a night training flight in an SR-71 Blackbird at night, he's at uh, about 70, 76, 77,000 feet, a Mach 2.7. It's 11 o'clock at night. He's going straight. There's a three-quarter moon off his port side, his left side. And he's, he's just going, through, you know, you never take your eyes off the instruments when you're, you're, you're moving through the air at uh, 3,000 feet per second. That's faster than a speeding bullet and more powerful than a locomotive and even able to jump over tall buildings with a single bound. So <laughs> clears them right over. Yeah. Right. Right. So, uh, yeah, he gets All of a sudden he gets a glint off something metallic heading in the same direction at about six or 7,000 feet above him, but still going in the same direction off his starboard side, his right hand side. So he contacts Kadena, Okinawa, where he's flying out of. He's on the, and to clarify, he's in the far Western Pacific near the Philippines. And he gets on secure voice and contacts Kadena. He said, well, do we have another bird up? He said, no, you're up there by yourself. He said, no, I'm not. I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a closer look. So 
the SR-71 and, and the A-12 uh, as well, it wants to fly fast. And, and you keep backing the throttle back, even at Mach 3.2, you're in minimum afterburner. So he's at 2.7, and he's right at the, at the detents before he goes out of burner. And he decided he's going to take a closer look. So he advances the throttle. He has about a, about a 10-degree bank as he's heading up towards this object. Said so it's not round. It has edges to it. And, those are the, that's, and it's metallic. That's what he's getting the glints from. And he figured when he was about a mile or two, away from it and still uh, maybe one or two thousand feet below this object it took off and left him in the dust it took off at about a 30 degree angle of attack and he he said he lost track of it probably going between a uh going through between 180 and 200,000 feet in altitude so i said he said when he got to area 51 as facility manager he fig he figured it was one of ours so he told me, he said, I was responsible for every, every single structure at Area 51, from a paint locker to, to the largest hangar they have there. And it was my job to, you know, to make sure that everything was secure and everything was running properly in the whole bit. And he said, so I asked him, I said, well, how about the underground facilities? And he said, I said, Jim, we have the ability at the Nevada test site to drill holes, a 36 foot diameter hole through solid granite. But said in the, in the area I was responsible for, there were no underground facilities. He said, doesn't mean there aren't any out there. It's just that, but after he was there about a year, he, he, he knew where most everybody anyway, because when you're, when you have lived and operated and worked in a, in a classified environment, which the blackbirds were, you have a fairly high clearance. Uh, you, you deal with the same people on a regular basis. So he said, after he was here, he said about a year, he, st he started uh, asking more questions. And one of the things you don't do, you work on a black program. If you're working on this widget over here, you can't, it may be your brother or your cousin or your next door neighbor is working on something over here. You can't ask him what he's doing. It's none of your business. And if you start asking questions, you're out of here. And people say, well, how, how can people keep classified uh, information classified for so long? And, that, and the, simple, the sim simple answer is, if, if your life and your working, your working life surrounds and is part of classified business, all they have to do is pull your clearance. You don't have a job. Everything you've done for the last 15 or 25 or 30 years, which has all been in, in a classified environment, you, have, you, have, you, you don't have that clearance anymore. So you're really, uh, you're really out of luck. And that's, how they, that's, and that's how they control the majority of it. They're not, they're not going to prosecute you. They're not going to file charges. Because if they do, and it goes to court, then they have to acknowledge the existence of the classified program. They won't do it. So they're better off by just uh, taking, pulling your clearance. Yeah. And, you know, these, now the, I think younger people uh, don't adhere to that nearly as, as strongly as, say, my grandparents or my parents. 
Now, just for the sake of, of you know, putting a timeline on something, I'm 76. So uh, my dad, my dad worked, he worked at Westinghouse. He wouldn't tell me what he did, but he helped design the ALQ-99 uh, jamming pod for the uh, EA-6B Prowlers. And um, I found that, that out many, many years later. But you don't talk about it. Those, that, those, that generation really kept things to themselves. So every once in a while, I, I, would, I would find someone who has been retired long enough. He's not worried about uh, any repercussions. He doesn't need his clearance. So they'll talk to me. So that's what I've done. And, and I have a dear friend who does this, and he can't do it now because of where he works. That's Michael Schratt. I don't know if you've ever had I a deal with him. I am very, very familiar with his work. I would love to have him on to talk to him. He is a fascinating, man. Just the uh, breakdowns that he has done. Uh, it's he. I, like I said, I've seen a lot of his work over the over several years. Yes, sir. Yeah, he's uh, he's. No one does it quite like Michael. So thorough, so detailed. I mean, he is an absolutely interesting and fascinating. And and the, the sad thing about it, he doesn't think he is. And everybody I know that's heard Michael speak are just, wow, that guy's good. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was a nerd. He's always been a nerd. And he was picked on <laughs> as a kid. And, uh, and he's, he's, a, he's a very, very dear friend of mine. I think the absolute world of, of Michael Stratt. And uh, anything he does, he, he does it to the best if anybody can do it. When, he, when he's doing research and he's, he's digging up stuff and the people, he has... He has four storage facilities filled with four drawer filing cabinets with evidence and documentation of everything that uh, he's been doing for the last 30 years. I mean, you can't hide anything from that guy. If you can find it out, Michael Stratt will figure it out. Right, right. And and he's just, um, he does such an incredible job yeah, of I what agree. he does. Yeah, and, and those and, out there and, who don't know him, just go ahead and look him up. He's all over YouTube. He's got some phenomenal work that he's done. Right, right. And then uh, uh, we have another a, another guy that was in that was in the community who just passed away April thirteenth was Mark McCandish. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark was a uh, a top you know top of his class uh, artist when it came to aviation related uh, artwork. And when, when Mark would do something, it wasn't a painting. It looked like a photograph that was actually created with, with pen and ink or with a brush. I mean, it was that you could almost hear the airplane. You can almost smell the, the, you know, the, you know, the exhaust. And uh, he passed away unexpectedly 62 years old. Yeah. And uh, he's gone. I remember hearing about that. So talented. He's incredibly talented. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, hell man, like I said, you, you're a fascinating guy. You've, you've done so much stuff. I mean, you know, so many cool people and, um, and everybody loves you. That's the thing. And, and that's, I've never heard one person say one bad thing about you. And I know we, we run in the same circles here. And okay. so, uh, but it, it is an honor, like I said, to be able to sit down and speak with you. So I'll probably, we'll probably wrap it up here in just a little bit for this iteration, but I, I, I want to have you back on for future conversations. So, oh, absolutely. And I, and I, and I won't, uh, I won't mistake you for Darcy. Oh, that's okay. It's fine. I, he'll get. I mean, I have your name down. Yeah, you know, you know, Brandon over <laughs> you here. You do a ton of these, man, and it's okay. We've only spoken on the phone. You didn't know what I look like, so that's fine. 
Right. It's okay. Right. Um, I, Darcy's going to get a kick out of it anyway. He's never going to let me live it down, first of all. And then uh, that, that comment that you said about me looking good whenever we first started, that's I'm probably not going to air. He's just going to keep referring back to that. He's going to say, oh, you thought you were me because you look good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Darcy's a great guy. We love him to death. Yeah. So I do want to know, um, I know we had talked about the exoplanets and we talked about the probability that... Of course, life exists somewhere else, right? Um, the numbers are just there with the Drake equation and everything uh, out in the 50s. Of course, the probability of there being other life on other planets is just it's asinine to think that there's not, right? Or it is a huge waste of space. That's the only other alternative, right? Right, right. So what what do you think? Do you think that that's the answer for it or does that explain it? Does that explain some of it, not maybe necessarily all of it? Uh, do you think that it is other entities or civilizations that exist in other parts of the galaxy or the universe that uh, have figured out a way to traverse those distances um, by making it easy? Yeah, according according to Bob Lazar, who I, I, I give him 100% authenticity, let's say this is the universe. You're over here. Yeah, you're over here. You're over, you're over here. And you want to go over here. You focus your your beam on this location, and as soon as you release the the field, you're there. There's there's no time interval involved to go from one side of the universe to the other side. Now to to go back to my involvement at Kit Peak, and people up there are great. Uh, I had a chance to go through the mirror lab. That's where they make all the really, really big mirrors for all the big telescopes now. And they're in the process. I think it'll be done at the end of 22. And I'm not sure when first light will be built, but they are building the giant Magellan telescope. It's going to have seven 27 foot diameter mirrors, all focused on one secondary mirror. And they figure, and it's at 16,000 feet, it's down in Chile, and they're 200 miles from the nearest town, so there's no light pollution. And it's a desert, so it's dry. But they figure that they will be able to look back at within 100,000 light years of first light. You know, and and I, think, I think what they're going to find is a smiley face. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You just put some money on that. I bet they would. Because that's one of the most mind-bending things about looking out into the stars, right? When you look at it, something and it's 10,000 light years away, you're looking at it as it was 10,000 years ago. That's Correct. what's so fascinating about me. So there's a civilization out there that's looking at this Earth that's 65 million miles away or whatever, light years away. They're seeing dinosaurs on this planet right now. Correct. Unless they've been here. And that's true too. And that, but that that trips me out. Like just that concept that that's how that's how all this works. I remember hearing that and just blowing my damn mind, man. Um, so, do you think that that's it? Do you think there's no other possibility for extraterrestrial entities at all, like interdimensionals or, uh, you know, the hollow Earth theory? Or um, have you heard the theory that they are possibly uh, future humans coming back in time machines? Have you heard of that one? I've, there's been a whole bunch of stuff uh, pop up just recently on. Uh, People came come back from you know they were in 2610 or something like that, and they've come back to uh, you know, 2021 or 2020. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I've heard those kind of specific time traveler type of stories, you know, with like the John Teeter stuff. Um, and then there's been a few people that claim that they're from the future. They look just like us. And he's saying, you know, uh, the air sucks in the future or whatever. I don't I don't know how to substantiate any of that stuff. But um, there's a biological anthropologist, uh, Dr. Michael P. Masters, that I've interviewed for the show. It's a great it's a great interview. He wrote a book called Identified Flying Objects. And that's one of his things. Right. So he's a biological anthropologist. He's a professor at a, a tenured professor at a, a Montana um, Tech University in in Butte, Montana. So he his specialty is in knowing what we used to look like and then being able to accurately, pretty pretty damn accurate, depict what we will look like in the future. And he thinks that these entities or these aliens with the and, and one of his arguments is, and it's a fascinating one, that that the fact that they're bipedal, right? Uh, bipedal is there's a lot of perils in that. There's a lot of perils being upright with two arms, two legs, a head, a torso. It, it's something that's only evolved on this planet one time, and it's been us. And right, we, and, and in in some cases, some of the great apes are you know, more. They're seeing more and more of them that are, that are walking upright. Yes, and they'll do that either uh, to uh, have physical advantages or to mimic humans that they've seen. So you even see like these orangutans who will take um, a spear and they, they make a spear and then they fish with it because they've seen local, I think it's Filipino population doing that, right? So they're mimicking the, um, the acts of humans that they've seen. So that's one possibility for it. But also bears. You see bears walking upright on, on yeah. two legs. So it is possible. But as far as being uh, evolutionarily to be able to use, utilize it as well as we have, it's only been us, right? And we're not even the most optimal thing. And and then you have to think about and something that he brings up in his book as well uh, is that the density on Earth is the way that it is. So therefore, it allows us to be the way that we are. So you would have to down to the micron, all the chemical makeup, all the gravity, uh, the oxygen, the, the just being a carbon based life form rather than a silica based life form. And so then you're, you're talking about completely different sets of guidelines, but most damn near all of them are bipedal, even if they're the mantis or the, you know, we hear about the reptilians, the mantis beings, things like that. All of them are bipedal. And it's, it's just an interesting thing. Uh, to think about, and it's one it's one of my more favorite theories. Honestly, I don't know what they are. I don't know if they are interdimensional. I've heard some great theories. I've heard some great arguments on it, to be honest with you. But on this show, man, we don't plant our flag. I just I like to talk about ideas, and especially with somebody like you that's been so tapped in. I I wanted to know what what your opinion was on it, or what what you thought. Well, I mean, I think I think uh, biologists and, and medical people uh, who are interested in uh, you know possible aliens. Uh, said so more than more than likely they'll be symmetrical on both. You know there'll be this you know, mirror image on on either side if you go get down the middle. Um, you know would have two eyes, uh, some type of nose. There, there'll be some type of orifice to you know to bring food in or nutrition. Um, they they depending on the, you know where they're coming from they you know they they may be muscular or they may you know if they live in a real low gravity area they may you know they may be very fragile um and i've never felt that we were alone i have never felt that uh, i have ever since i was a little kid i've always looked to the sky and and i still do today i mean i go out my i go out my backyard at night when the when the uh uh plant planning light not the lights the uh the lights i have going around you know go around the fence and whatever you know foundation lighting if you call it that i'll go out there and you know, wait for my eyes to adjust and uh, i'll sit i'll sit on the edge of the hot tub and, and look up 
And it's, it's absolutely amazing the, the amount of stars you see. Uh, now, um, I've, been, I've been to the fence line at Area 51 in Tonopah 80 times in the last 40 years. I've been doing this for a long time. But when my son was about 15, that was 30 years ago. Holy buckets. <laughs> when my son James was 15, I took him, uh, I took him to uh, Area 51. And we camped out at the, at the fence line. And we were, we were hidden, we were camouflaged. Um, and it was, just, it, was, it was just a fun time. We were there for five days. And the stars were so bright that he, and, his, and of course he's young too, so he has good eyes. He could read by starlight. There was enough illumination. And he said, when, I think the first or second night we were there, he said, Dad, I got a question. I said, what's that, James? He said, when we were out here today, there were no clouds. And now there's this big, huge band of clouds going across the sky. And I said, James, that is the Milky Way. <laughs> he said, oh, my God, never seen that before. Because he lives in the city. He lives in Minneapolis. Well, and did you hear uh, there was a time when I want to say it was L.A. and it went they had with that big blackout and people were calling the cops because they were scared of what they saw in the sky because nobody had ever seen that in the sky. The Milky Way and all the stars. They didn't know that that's what it looked like. Correct. Yeah. So they were calling all these people. uh, They're calling the cops just losing their damn minds, you know, freaking out, thinking something's wrong. It's it's just wild. You know, it's really amazing as far as numbers go. I mean, the number of stars out there. Uh, I could fill I could fill my entire office up with zeros this small, and it wouldn't it wouldn't even scratch the surface. Yeah, what do they say? Uh, There's more stars in the universe than there are uh, grains of sand on all the beaches in the world. Correct. I mean, that's, it's just mind blowing. You can't wrap your mind around it. I mean, it's it's just in- insane. Yeah, and it's just uh, I, we're not alone. We just we just can't be. I mean, and, and as far as UFOs, I, I talked about Dave Fruhoff, you know, chasing a UFO and a blackbird and getting, you know, uh, left in the dust. My boss, when I was on state staff for the Minnesota Air Guards, you know, Major General Wayne, Wayne Gatlin, one a hell of a photographer. And one of the reasons I joined the Guard was because, because of him and Ray Kozowski, who was the deputy commander, and John Broman. But uh, I asked I asked General Gatlin once. I said, "Sir, I said, have, have you ever, ever encountered UFOs?" And he said, "I chased one." I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "It was mid fifties. Uh, there's an Air Force station uh, in Finley, Minnesota. It's right on the shore of Lake Superior. It's near Split Rock. They uh, they and we, this is when they had active duty alert at Duluth Air Force Base, and the guard was also also on alert." And there was an unidentified, an unknown in the middle of Lake Superior moving at a high rate of speed. So they launched three F-94C star, you know, I think star fighters. And they head out and they're, you know, they're going, they're going as fast as they can. I mean, they're not like today's jets that can go Mach 1 or Mach 2 or in case the Blackbirds Mach 3. And uh, they, they, spot, they spot this object way ahead of them. And the uh, the Wizzo, the weapon systems operator, he turns on his uh, uh, weapons radar, and as soon as he locks on, the radar just dies. He does it again. 
He pulled the circuit breaker, put the circuit breaker back in. He finally, he, he gets a lock on and the thing, the radar dies. And it, I think General Gatlin said he did it. He, his backseater did it, you know, three times. And then the thing sped off. I mean, much faster than they could they could uh, catch up with them. And they they're talking to Finley because Finley still has them on radar. And he, Finley said they're heading right towards us at a high rate of speed. And he said, "So are we. We can't use burner because you know it burns too much fuel, and you don't want to you don't want to crash into Lake Superior. The water is like thirty nine degrees. Yeah, let's avoid that in the summer. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and." Uh, so the guys at Finley all of a sudden yells out, "We've lost it! It's no, we don't know. We no longer have it on our radar." And as General Gatlin's getting closer, who's a major at the time, as he was getting closer, he said, "Well, the reason you don't, you didn't pick it up as it went by you. It's right over you. It's hovering above you." And General Gatlin said they got close enough so they could see the object. But as soon as the guys came out, this thing went straight up, wow. visibility unlimited, and it disappeared. And this is the 1950s. So are we alone? Nah, of course nope. not. Of course nope. not. The odds are against it. Completely agree, man. Completely yep. agree. Yeah. So I tell you what, Jim, let's uh let's cut it on that and then I'm gonna have you back to tell some more cool stories uh here in the near future, okay? Yeah, and I want I wanna accuse you of being Darcy. No, don't. <laughs> you're fine. Actually, I'm gonna yeah. put like a Darcy. I'll do a deep fake. Have you seen that where you they can put people's faces over you? Oh, yeah. Uh, Doc Skinner else? does it all the time. Yeah, I mean, it, there you go. I was about to say, yes, you and Doc are good friends. Great guy. Yeah. I, yeah. And so, yeah, I'll do that. I'll just wear a Darcy face um, for, for our next interview. That's great. Like I said, he's going to get a big kick out of this. And I got a big yeah. kick out of it, too. I don't take it personally. Yeah. You're great. Well, I my, my life is sort of upside down right now. Um, November 27th of 18, uh, my wife had her right kidney removed because it was cancerous. And they thought they got everything. And uh, oh, about three weeks ago, they informed formed us that last time she had an X-ray or a CT scan, uh, they found some somewhere else. So my mind's been a little bit uh, you're, you're not not fine. not too focused. Uh, but the way I look at it, it's you know her her doctors at Mayo Clinic up in Phoenix. I had uh, nine and a half hours of brain surgery at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, back the day that Challenger blew up. I was under a seizure for 11 hours. That's a long time. I wasn't supposed to make it. So I figured I made it. I'm still here. Uh, they'll do a good job with my wife. And if it, if it was really serious, they would have brought her in the next day. That's the way they operate. That's a great, great point. And we're going to keep her in our prayers and our good vibes. So guys, send your send your love out for... For Jim and his wife here. So thank you so much, man. This is honestly. All right. Well, Jim Goodall, I cannot thank you enough for your time, sir. Um, if you don't mind, just tell the folks out here where they can find you and, and I'm going to get you scheduled for another one. Well, I'm on Facebook, uh, Jim Goodall. Right now I'm on my seventh 30 day jail <laughs> of Facebook. Yeah, you're a troublemaker. <laughs> I'm politically incorrect. <laughs> right. Could you tell the and, truth? And the, um, uh, now, are you on mute or is it me? Uh, you're good. I can hear you. Okay. Yeah. The, the thing up at the top up here says mute. But uh, No, you're, you're green okay. over here, Bubba. Okay. Um, where was I? Uh, Facebook. Facebook. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been in Facebook jail. Just, they put me in jail just yesterday. I've only been out of jail for 10 days. 
And I, I get ding for stuff I don't even post. Straight to jail. Straight to jail. Do not pass go. <laughs> That's right. Um, but if they want my books, now I have uh, 27 books in print. You go to Amazon, probably the fastest and cheapest way. You go books by James C. Goodall, G-O-O-D-A-L-L. And my uh, four, four books from Sheffer, which were the Los Angeles class, uh, Fast Attacks, volume one. Volume two is a Virginian Seawolf class. And these are hardbound, 160 to 175 pages. <clears throat> then I have my Blackbird book from Sheffer. And to, to quote Jeff Babion, who is the vice president general manager of the Skunk Works, I sent one to him, autographed it, and sent it to him. He said, I only have one word to describe your Blackbird book, spectacular. So Elon Musk has my Blackbird book on his desk. How cool. How cool is that? And I got a call from SpaceX inviting me with one or two other friends to go on a tour of SpaceX. So it's, I'm uh, it's out here I, in Texas. So when you come, man, scoop me up. We'll go down there and you can come hang out at the ranch with the wife and I for a day or so. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to go down and watch a launch. That would be a kick. Oh, hell yeah. Let's yeah. Go do that. But but the, the two people that I'm inviting are Joel Christopher Payne, super guy. And art, he's a cartoonist for, for Disney and he does all sorts of other stuff. And he's just he's just a neat guy. And his best friend is Rod. Roddenberry, Gene Roddenberry's Gene Roddenberry? son. Yeah, oh, Gene okay. Roddenberry's son. Wow. So it's the three of us sometime in June, assuming that everything works well, yeah. should should be getting a tour of the SpaceX facility in Hawthorne. How cool. Now, I asked if I can get a picture with Jeff, uh, with uh, Elon Musk holding my book. And his his personal secretary said, highly unlikely that would happen oh we'll i'll get with darcy we'll photoshop one in that's not a problem it's oh okay. yeah you'll yeah. have one by the end of the week no big deal oh, okay <laughs> okay so um and then and again again i just uh there's there's stuff on, on in amazon for for used books for me jim goodall jc goodall James Goodall, James C. You know Goodall. Yeah, anyway, you can do it. And I'm going to link all of this in the show notes. So actually, the audience knows this. They're great about it. You can just go down in the bottom. You just click right on that link. It's going to take you to exactly where you can find uh, Jim if he's not in jail, as well as his books. And uh, you and, can pick some of those up there. Incredibly well done, guys. He is fascinating. And, there and it is. That. I am. I am so. I'm so proud of this book. Yeah, 75 years of school works. It's so cool. It's 384 pages, 1,100 plus photos, and I covered 43 programs. Incredible. Incredible. And it's, and it's fun. And it's fun. And it's yeah. It's amazing. I mean, just look at the bookshelf behind you there. So if you guys aren't seeing this on YouTube, go check uh, the YouTube out. Of course, you all know how to do this. Uh, Jim Goodall, thank you so much for your time, my friend. Hey, my absolute pleasure. We'll do it again soon. Sounds great. All right. Brandon, you have a good one. Thank you. All right. Take care. A true honor to be able to sit down with the legendary Jim Goodall today. All of the ways, of course, guys, to find him will be linked in the show notes. Go check that out for his books as well as his Facebook. I'll be linking that as well. If you just want to reach out, he's a sweetheart. 
he'll uh, he'll talk to you. He'll say hi because he's great. Uh, and some fascinating information and some great stories, man. That guy's just lived an incredible life. Uh, and it was just, like I said, a true honor to be able to sit down and speak with him today. So all the ways to find this show is going to be uh, one central hub there. Uh, actually, you can just go to expandingrealitypodcast.com. That is where the links to all of the socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, the YouTube is up there as well. Patreon, if you guys find the show valuable, check that out. Also on TikTok. I haven't linked that in the website yet, and I'll probably do that soon. It's weird. Don't judge me. Uh, there's actually some really cool stuff on there. If you haven't spent so much time on TikTok, uh, go check it out. There's there's some really cool stuff. Um, and it's interesting. So beyond that, guys, uh, this week, uh, pick up a piece of litter. Get out of that left-hand lane. Smile at somebody. Buy them a meal. Pet a strange dog or just a normal dog, whatever you feel. Uh, just go out into the world, guys, and be good to one another. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you next time.